Welcome to the Veterans Breakfast Club, where veterans tell their stories. The mission of the Veterans Breakfast Club is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories, and we accomplish this through public storytelling programs where veterans of all eras can share their memories in their own words. Enjoy the program. Thank you all for coming out to our Veterans Breakfast Club event here at Spring Valley in Fayette County. This is our third one here, our third year coming here. And it's such a wonderful event. Thank you to the Spring Valley community for inviting us here. Uh, my name is Todd DePastino. I'm the director of the Veterans Breakfast Club. And I know there are many people here who haven't heard of us or haven't been to one of our events. So I, I thought I'd let you know that we're a nonprofit organization. We've been around for eight years. And our mission is to get veterans together with members of the public and have the veterans share their stories. And we do about 40 events a year. This year we're scheduled to do 50 events. We do them all throughout Western PA. Uh, our crowds range from 50 people to about 200 people. And it ain't brain surgery. I go around with the microphone and I coax the veterans to share a story. Some of the veterans get mad at me if I ask them to share a story. Some of them threaten to punch me out, but that the risk, that's the risk I take. And uh, you never quite know what you're going to hear. Last year, I, I looked through our records and I found that uh, the youngest vet to share a story was a 24-year-old Marine, and our oldest vet to share a story was 102, uh, a Navy veteran, Angelo Camarada, and he just passed away, and he was, I mean, he was old during World War II. He said, I was old enough to know I didn't want to be in the Army. And so he joined the Navy as a cook. And he is in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the longest serving bartender at one bar, 77 years. He holds that record. So, and we have everything in between. And it's just a delight. It's a fascinating thing for me. I'm not a veteran. I teach, I teach history. That's how I got it involved. I, I write and teach history. And I just started having veterans come visit my classes, and I started interviewing them for research projects, and just became fascinated with the stories, and also very much inspired by them. And I, I also saw that my students, if I would give them a lecture on the Vietnam War, they'd sleep right through it. If I had a Vietnam veteran come into class to tell about his experience, they were in rapt attention. This is our history. And there's nothing like hearing these stories uh, from those who lived it. And uh, that's what we look to do today. We uh, are a nonprofit, so we get by on donations and grants and also sponsorships. And we have some wonderful sponsors here today, and I'm very grateful for them. Uh, one is Joe Softa from Clus uh, Lumber. Joe, would you mind standing up and just uh, acknowledging your sponsorship at the very least? I just want to thank everybody in the Spring Valley community for giving us the opportunity to sponsor this thing. You know, it's uh, pretty neat. It's not what I expected, quite honestly, this morning. And uh, secondly, a special thanks to all you veterans out there who served our country. Unfortunately, I wasn't a veteran, never had the opportunity, but my hat off to you guys. Thank you, Joe. Let's give Joe a round of applause. We also have Chuck Schrankel here. And Chuck is with Concerned Veterans for America. And Chuck, uh, you are a West Point graduate. You might be the only West Pointer in the room. I don't know if you outrank, well, Lieutenant Colonel Ben Wright. He outranks everybody. Uh, but, uh, so you're not in command. Sorry, Chuck. No, he doesn't. 
No, he doesn't. <laughs> Let me. How many were uh, E5 or more? I see some hands go up. Okay. You full as far colonel. as as far as who ranks outranks whom. When I was a young infantry sec airborne ranger second lieutenant, uh, the best advice I ever received was when you get to your first command assignment. Do what your sergeant tells you to do. So since then, I figure you guys have outranked me, and I've lived my life that way, okay? Go to the people that know what they're doing. Uh, now, I am with the Concerned Veterans for America. Uh, first of all, I want to tell you uh, what we're not. Uh, we're not looking for money. Uh, we're not trying to eliminate the VA, and we are not a partisan or political organization. And what we are, and, and if you have this little brochure, it says it on the front. We're standing for the freedom and prosperity our veterans and their families fought to defend. Now, what does this mean? It means we're setting up a network of veteran voices. I do want something from you. I want your voice. How we're setting up this network is, number one, contacting everyone in the state, as far as we're concerned, the state of Pennsylvania. This is going on across the country. To identify veteran households, veterans, veteran advocates, veteran families, anyone who is, supports veterans and their issues. And then as a follow-up to that, it's, at some point, we may get back to you and, and alert you to the fact that there's an issue before Congress that is veteran-friendly, that has to do with national defense, and suggest you call your elected official and voice your opinion. We're not going to tell you or suggest what your opinion should be. The next step, of course, is that we have national elections coming up. And we're going to encourage every veteran, every veteran advocate to vote. We're not going to encourage you whom to vote for. We want you to get out and vote. And so two things are going to happen during this process. Number one, they're going to realize how, how you feel, how we feel on a certain issue. Secondly, they're going to start getting the under, uh, feeling that this is one tremendous voting block. Maybe I ought to start paying attention to them. On the table, you have certain things. You have the brochure that I just, I just mentioned. Uh, I have books that's VA healthcare books. It's a study on, on our recommendations, not for eliminating for the VA, making it work. Uh, I have business, some business cards on the back table that I welcome you to take. And then I have sign-up sheets, and this is what I'm looking for you. We need your voices, and the only way to, to get your voices is to get, find out who you are and how to contact you. I can guarantee you we're not going to solicit for funds. We're not going to solicit anything. Any contact with you by email or by phone could be, can you join us for a gathering just to bring you up to date on what we're doing that would be at our cost? Or can you make some phone calls for us if it's convenient for you? Or, as I said before, alert you to issues coming up and then encourage you to get out and vote. So please, please uh, uh, sign up, fill those sign-up sheets for me. By the way, for those of you who are having good luck with the VA, I congratulate you for that. But really, uh, think about your brothers and sisters across the country, Philadelphia, Phoenix, Chicago, who aren't having good luck with the VA. We need to change that. Uh, VA accountability on the Hill right now allows uh, VA management to fire inept employees. Act of Congress. It's gone through the House. It's stalled in the Senate. Your senator needs to hear your opinion. There's another act that, uh, that is, uh, you don't hear much about is the Toxic Chemical Research Act. I think that's the name of it. I don't know. It has to do with researching chemicals other than Agent Orange for, for campaigns other than Vietnam. 
and it's uh, uh, in our state. Congressman Rothfuss, I know, is behind it. Murphy, I think, is. Uh, I don't know about Schuster. Casey is, and Toomey hasn't made a call yet. So he needs to be told, look it, this is for our benefit. So anyway, please fill out the forms. Fill the sheets up, okay? Nobody gets out of here without our getting your name and contact information. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chuck. And our final sponsor is Uniontown Hospital, and we have Mike Beachy here. Mike, there you are. Hi, Mike. Mike is a, uh, uh, you're, you're a Marine? I am a Marine veteran, yep. When did you join the Marines? I was in the Marine Corps from 1998 through 2002. Why did you join the Marines? I joined the Marines because I wanted to be challenged, and I thought it was about the coolest thing you could do, and then I joined it and found out it was. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it was one of those things that I knew from being a sophomore in high school, uh, just pushing myself and challenging myself is what I wanted to do, as most of you can probably relate to. And so I walked in the Marine Corps' office as a freshman turning a sophomore, said I want to join the Marine Corps, hands a book of papers in front of me, has everything filled out, and then he tells me, what grade are you in? And I told him, and he said, get out of my office, come back in two years. And so I did, and he let me run with them and do everything with the delayed entry program. But I, uh, I would call my enlistment probably two years before that, just running down at the Reserve Center in Connellsville and everything else. Right. I um, was talking to a Marine recently, a young Marine, and I told him, boy, boot camp, so mentally challenging. I, I said, I don't think I would have made it through. And he said something interesting. He said, there's only one rule in Marine boot camp, and that is don't quit. That is it, yeah. That's it. Yeah. You don't have to be good or great at anything. You just can't quit. Is that pretty much it? I would say that that's it. It's uh, not only don't quit, but pushing the people around you and making sure that the people around you are as good as you are. You can be great, but if the people around you aren't, you're only as good as your weakest link. That was something I learned from the Marine Corps. And so the gentleman spoke to the E5 and above. I was a sergeant, and I learned in boot camp what it meant to push the people around me to be not just good, but to be as excellent as I wanted to be as a team. And so that was something I learned in the Marine Corps. And Mike, I know that you're a sponsor, but I do want to ask you this. So you were a Marine on uh, September 11th, 2001. Was. How did life change after that day? So that's an interesting question. Um, the, the way life changed for me was having a wife and son who lived at that time in Somerset County and watching the planes hit the tower, watching it unfold while I was stationed in Japan. I was in Iwakuni, Japan at that time and realizing that we were getting alerts. We were being told to you know, get ready to go somewhere. And uh, watching those hit and then hearing that a plane went down in Somerset County, knowing that my family was there, was, you know, it hit home, literally. And so I think we all had our connection to that date. And so for me, it just changed life. So I deployed within two months and we went to our hotspot. I was with the uh, mobile uh, expeditionary force. We went from there. I went and set up a forward air refueling point in South Korea. And so that was where we set up. One had nothing to do with the other, but it was our point of deployment, and that's where they sent us. And so that's where I went. So I spent the winter in a tent in South Korea about, uh, I guess it had been about 20 miles south of the DMZ. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you got out in 2002. That's right. Yeah, in 2002. And you left because you had a, you had a family now? and Had a family now. Uh, was Everybody's got their story. Found myself uh, the fulcrum point between a couple gunnies yeah. and uh, decided I would go ahead and wouldn't put myself at the position to be at the whim of another person. doesn't work that way, but you're young and you think you know it all. So, right. Uh, yeah. Right. 
Well, thank you for coming and sponsoring for Uniontown Hospital. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great to be here. It's been great to hear your stories. I actually uh, wanted to share very briefly um, what caused me, and I should have said this when you asked me about why I wanted to serve. I had a grandfather. He's the namesake of my youngest son, and he served in World War II. And he would tell us the stories. He said he got off the boat one time when he was serving in Italy, uh, where he earned his Purple Heart. And he got off the boat and said that uh, the people that were, he was relieving told him to live off the land, that it's summer here year-round. My grandfather was a farmer, and uh, he just enjoyed making things grow. And so that was his collateral duty. We all know what those means. That means you do that on top of everything else you do. And he said, live off the land means that we were going to have tomato plants. And so they had a tomato plant that was, he exaggerated, I'm sure, but he said it was eight foot tall. And they got it to grow that, and they had huge tomatoes on it. And by the time it was time to pick those tomatoes, he said they had received shelling from the Italians earlier. And when you know, one of those shells hit that huge tomato plant. And so that's the story that I have from my grandfather. Um, and I, I never heard the story of his Purple Heart. And so I wanted to share with you a passage of scripture this morning because the role that I serve at the Uniontown Hospital is the pastoral care coordinator in addition to the role that I serve as a coordinator with the Uniontown Hospital Police. And I shared with Phil this morning, I got to meet Phil Gotti from here in the community. I shared with him a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 7. It says, to go to our fathers and to hear their stories, that we are not to forget the generation before us, that we've got to hear those stories. Go to the elders of our community. Let them tell us their stories. We can't forget that. And if we know scripture at all, we know that God's always telling the people of Israel to build a monument, to honor those that had to do, had to make decisions. And so I really appreciate what you're doing, Todd. I appreciate having the ability to come and hear some of the stories. And I'm going to be brief because I want to hear your stories. But I heard that and I just couldn't get I can't let you go without letting you know this is scriptural. This is something that we need to be doing. And I think to myself, we know of a very famous poem penned from the War of 1812, a couple-day war, but you know the words of it. We sing it at every sporting event. We've made it into a song. We call it our national anthem. But what it is is it's the depiction of Francis Scott Key seeing the bombardment of Fort McHenry during the War of 1812 when our country was still yet fighting for its independence. And so what my plea is for you is to remember freedom is always under battle. I teach my two sons that all the time. Freedom is always under battle. It's always being needing defended. And so I would just encourage you to remind yourself the stories you tell are telling me and my generation so that I can tell my kids and their generation what freedom's cost will always be. And so I just appreciate what you do. I want to let you know on behalf of Uniontown Hospital, our statements are our will statements. And so I just wanted to encourage you. I hope that as I will, and as the Uniontown Hospital, we said we will make healthy differences in the lives we touch. I hope that you would choose to do the same. So I just thank you all for your service and uh, thank Todd for doing this. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you for that scripture. I'm going to look that up, Deuteronomy. 32-7. That's because that does explain what our mission is in a, in a really powerful, beautiful way. I, I want to announce two things. First of all, Ben Wright, I'm sorry you are not the highest ranking veteran here. George D'Angelo, you're a full bird colonel. You could raise your hand if you want. All right. You can see he's very excited to, be, uh, to show off his rank here. Um, but we have somebody who outranks George in terms of age. Ed, you had a birthday recently, didn't you? This is going to be a great breakfast. We're going to have a lot of stories. You had a birthday recently. Why? Yesterday was my birthday. How old were you yesterday? 93. 
how old is Beverly? Ed, can you believe you are not the oldest one here? I'm not. You're not. That's good. <laughs> Would you mind standing up? Okay. Ed, I know you're a World War II vet, and you were in the Army. How did you join the Army? Did they draft you? I drafted. I was drafted. Yeah, I was working in the coal mines, and my number came up, and I, and I went. I didn't argue about it. I went. You went in? Yeah. And where did they send you for basic? I went to Missouri, out St. Louis, Missouri, or at uh, Fort Leonard Wood. Fort Lost in the Woods, Misery, right? Yeah. And, and you, were, were you, you were infantry, correct? You started out as infantry, correct? Uh, I had five weeks of uh, basic training. And then I went into what they called specialist engineering. Okay, specialist engineering. what training I took, and that's what I went overseas for, was specialist engineering. Tell me about going overseas. What was that like? Well, <laughs> we were in a convoy... And it took us 27 days to get there. And we were coming into the Rock of Gibraltar. Uh, this was probably maybe an hour before dark, and you could see pretty good. And the Germans had an air base and a submarine base at the Rock of Gibraltar in that close by. So they came out and attacked us. So I was in the tail of the convoy. And so we were back there, and we could see everything going. And I don't know how many ships were sunk, but anyhow, we got orders to get out of there and go to Casablanca. You said a colonel did you a favor, right? Right. What happened there is they had been paratroopers seen in the sky that night, and they it was come dropping down. So we, they didn't know who they were. I mean, well, it wasn't us, but I mean, but anyhow, in the morning, we got together, a kind of squad of us, and we went out, well, several squads went out, but anyhow, we went out to find them, which we didn't. On the way back, we were in an old trail coming through, and there's a house there that somebody had, which I think it could have been either one, American or German, they destroyed that house. They just shot it till there was nothing left there. And there's a foundation there. So we stopped there, and we had a lieutenant was for our master, or he's the head of the squad. And uh, so he was there walking, practicing back and forth, and we were laying there taking, taking it easy. And uh, he says, uh, did uh, you, all you guys have uh, hand grenade experience? We said, yeah, we've had that, you know. And this one boy said, no. He said, I do. He said, I never had that. So uh, he said, you didn't? No, he said, he didn't. So uh, he showed him and took his hand grenade out, and he threw it over that old foundation. So then he told uh, this boy, he said, well, he said, uh, if, he, he told him he didn't have no, he'd never had no experience, you know. So anyhow, that kind of made a big laugh there, but uh, he showed that boy, he said, yes, well, this is it. And he said, told him, he said, take yours out. He said, you've got... He didn't, he didn't realize that he had, he said, well, he looked, he said, well, that sergeant, he said, up at, uh, he said, he, when we was getting our supplies, the supply sergeant, he said, 
says, you better take your pineapples with you because he said you might need them out there. And that boy said, pineapple? And the lieutenant said to him, said, well, he didn't even know he had them. He thought them was cans. He didn't pineapple. even know what they, okay. Yeah, they called them pineapple. He thought, so that's what we called right. them. Right, yeah. he thought they were canned pineapple, cans of pineapple? No, that regular thing, you know how that little sure. notch was on the anchor date? Sure. Well, it looked like a pineapple. We called it pineapples. <laughs> right. So anyhow, that little joke went by, you know, and uh, so he told him, he said, go ahead, take it out and try it, do it, you know. So they were doing it, and uh, he got it, and the boy got the, pit, the hand grenade and the pin, and he told him, he said, pull the pin and hold that trigger, you know, don't throw it until you're ready to go. Right. And that boy got it, and he pulled the pin out, and when he pulled the pin out, and he just started going, like this, you know. Oh, no. And he dropped that hand grenade. Oh, no. Right at my feet and his feet. Oh, my gosh. He was the next guy in line in the, in the squad. And I don't know how I did it, but it was just so quick and so done unthinkable. I don't think he even thought. And I hauled off and I kicked that baby. He went over and in that foundation. And just as it went out of sight, it went off. Whoa. So you so kicked it out of the way. I kicked it out of there. So anyhow... It was so quiet there, you could hear a cricket hall over there. <laughs> Anyhow, that lieutenant, he was down, I looked up at him, and I never had anybody look at me like he did, but he was just like looking through you. His glassy like eyes. Yeah. And that finally, he just, like he woke up and he hollered, fall in. <laughs> That's the first thing he came out of his mouth, said, fall in. So we took off and we went for the. Going for home, you know. And uh, so we got in, and there wasn't only one guy. The second guy back behind me, when we was coming, thanks, Jackson. Thanks, Jackson. I said, that's all right, buddy. That was my hiney I was trying to find, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So anyhow, what? we went on in, and we were there. We got in the camp. We had our pup tents up there, and he discharged us. The lieutenant discharged us. And I started to go, everybody's turn, go to the pup tent. And I'd stop at about a half turn and look back at him. And there he was looking, standing there looking at me. I'm not going to say the first word, buddy. you you got to talk. If you want to hear talk to me, you're going to have to talk. I was going to just start it, you know. So for, it was probably only seconds, but it seemed like minutes and so. But anyhow, he didn't say nothing. He just still had that looking at me. And I just went on to my pup tent. So then the next day, the runner come down, and he hollered and hollered my name. He said, you were needed up at the Italian headquarters right away. So I goes up, and I went in. And so the colonel. The guy in charge of the battalion. Know, well, you had a sergeant in front. You had right. to go through him. Right. And uh, so he told me, he said, well, sit down there. And I sit down, and he said, he's looking at the papers and records, what we've done, you know. And he said, uh, you know what? He said, I would like to do you a favor. The colonel said to you, well, I'd like now, to do you a, a favor. The colonel come up to you and said, I want to do you a favor. That makes things start spinning around here. What's going on here? So he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, I've been going over your records. And he said, I see where you're headed. And he said, it's not a good place. So he said, I think maybe if I could do you this favor, he said, I could send you to another place. 
And I said, well, where's that at, sir? And he said, I'm going to send you to a port battalion. And I never heard tell of a port battalion. So I said, well, sir, what's a port battalion? What is it like? You know what? He said, that's where they load and unload ships. Oh, I said, well, okay. And uh, so he said, well, I want to send you there. And he said, well, you want to go? Will you go? I, I said, well, if it's better than that, I said, I guess that would be better. So he said, all right. So you joined the Port Battalion, but it turns out they sent you to Anzio. Well, it, and that wasn't a great place to be. Well, that wasn't as good a place either because you're, that's the supply line. And supply line is what they really, they really wanted to do, you know, because that's the name of the game. You get, if I take all your guns, you ain't going to do no fighting. Right. So, and you had a couple close calls there at Anzio. Yeah. I actually had four times that I still don't know how it happened, why, or what. But two times, two bombs, one came down under where I was sleeping, hit the sidewalk, went down in there, never went up. I was right straight over top of it. A dud. Never went, dud. The second one, I was out on a ship. We was unloading the ship. I went up for a rest. We was down in the hold. And uh, it's a real moonlight night, night with those puffy clouds rolling, making shadows, you know. And I was standing there, and I seen this shadow. It looked funny from the other shadows. And I looked up, and here was an airplane. And the guy tipped it just a little bit and flipped it back, and I seen the bomb come out. And it went, I could have reached out like that and slapped that thing, but it went down beside that ship. Another dud. Another dud. Another dud. But I run up, went up, another, two other guys was there too, and we run up and told the captain. So they abandoned, we got off the ship and got back, got away. So the next morning, they pulled it, the divers went down and got it, brought it up. Right. So it was laying on the dock there, you know, where it was there. It wasn't a fib, you know. And then the other time, I was in Angio, me and another boy, and this is a little story too. We, we started out in the top of the ship, top layer deck. Food was in there. This is all food. So we unloaded that, and uh, you would form a line of maybe 10 guys, and you would just take a case and throw it, you know, just keep down the line. That's how you unloaded this right. by hand, like that. So this here, one case was busted, and the can come rolling out on the floor. Well, they kicking it around, you know, and I'm at the end of the line, kicking up. So on the inside of the ship, we call it a rib, there's an airspace there. And a gallon can will just go down through there, and this is a gallon of peaches. So the gallon, I just picked it up, and up to the top, and there at the top, you could throw it in there. So I just threw that can in there. And so uh, anyhow, then, when we got down to the bottom, or down where the ammo and everything, ammo and our shells, bombs, all that stuff, was all in the, everything heavy like that was down in the bottom of the ship. So <laughs> anyhow, and when we finally got down to that, and me and my buddy, and we decided we'd get that can of peaches, which we did, and we have an air rage, you know, all the time. We'd just stay down there and eat peaches. So we, 
we got the gallon of cans and peaches, and, and when the air raid hollered, you know, siren come on, they, everybody left. We goes up and we're sitting on the upper deck. We're sitting there and we're eating our peaches. And I said to him, I said, look up there. He said, what? I said, that looks like, to me, that's an airplane. And he said, how do you know? I said, well, I seen the sun's flashing, flickered up there. He said, that was a seagull. I said, no, no, they don't, seagulls don't have flash, the <laughs> sun don't flash off them. He said, but I said, that ain't no damn plane. So we're sitting there eating our peaches while I'm watching him. Directly got to where you could truly identify it was a plane. I said, uh, I don't know about you, buddy, but I said, I think I'm going to get out of here. Oh, I said, they ain't coming here. I said, it looks to me like he's headed right for this hole. Oh, he's laughing, yeah. I said, well, I don't know, but I'm getting out of here. So I did. I just lower. Up the ladder I goes. And just as I got to top the ladder on the deck, I thought, well, I'll run, I'll jump or go and run down the deck. So I gets over on the top of the hatch. Maybe it's only about four steps or five, something like that. And I looked over my shoulder, and there they all went down a hole. So when I got to the edge of the rear top of the deck there, something hit me like that, and I just, I was going, well, whatever, some kind of concussion, I guess, from that, and it blacked me out. And I didn't come to till later on, and here I was down by the gangplank, and there's ribs in the side of the ship, is metal there. And I was wedged upside down, down in between those ribs. So you were stuck upside down. You I came to upside, upside down. down. And I come to. But when I come to, I was as numb as numb could be. I couldn't talk. And I could hear them. I could hear and I could see. They was powering to band and ship. And they was all getting out and going. And I'm in there. And everybody running and going. And I thought... Nobody sees me. And finally, by, he got quiet down. I heard the lieutenant, our lieutenant. He all, everybody stay aboard the ship. All soldiers stay here. Do not leave the ship. Well, the Navy left. The Navy left. They left. But you guys stayed. They took their boat. We okay. stayed there. So directly I heard him holler. Some of them said, here them SBs come again. So <laughs> they said, the lieutenant says, does any of you fellows know how to run them guns? Well, yeah. Yeah, we know. He said, then get your honey up there, he said, and get them, knock them out there. So they got up and boy, they sure they did. They, they, they downed the plane. Well, they was all hard, you know, they got him, they got him, they got him. And I'm still down there. <laughs> so anyhow, everything got quieted down and, and they were all over and they was looking at the ship. Well, when the bomb went down in a hole, and then of course with all the ammo and all, that cut that ship in two, completely in two. Wow. And the back end of that ship was at least 100 feet or better back because one went one way and one went the other way. Right. And that's what probably what saved me because I was going with the front when I went in there. But anyhow. Somebody came and found you, right? Yeah. So, what did they say? Well, this medic, they hollered for a medic. Well, what happened with this to start with I'm there, and I seen this guy come up, and he stopped, and he put his head down on the deck, and he looked, and I couldn't holler, and I was trying to, so I just started batting my eyes, 
And he jumped up and held, this guy's alive. He said, hey, 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 he hollered for the medic. Medic came back and he got me. Yeah. He got me down and he got me up. And after a while, he got me worked and yeah. I started feeling. And I was okay then. And all you had was a bump on I your head? I had a bump on my goose egg on the top of my head. Do you get a Purple Heart for that? I did not. You did not? I did not. And they wanted to put me on the hospital ship. I said, I was bullheaded too, you know. But uh, I said, no, I'm walking, I'm standing up, and I ain't going anywhere. You must be very grateful to have made it to 93 after going through all that. <laughs> well, it, uh, it's the truth, and it's, it's nothing to you be ashamed lucky. of. And, and I mean, it's, it's actual facts. And, I, and I'll tell you what, if you experience the same thing, you'll never forget it. You'll never forget it. Thank you very much, Ed. Thank you. Happy birthday. I uh, forgot to mention our newsletter. We send our newsletter out with our schedule. And this newsletter, this is our new newsletter, and it will be coming out uh, next week. And if you don't get the newsletter in the mails because we don't have your address, I know many of you have left your address uh, and so let us know what your address is, and you'll get a newsletter in the mail with our schedule through September. And I'm hoping to put maybe another event here if we can, if we could schedule one, uh, maybe for the fall. So if you don't get a newsletter from us, please let us know your address. And the other plug I'm going to make before I have Beverly Krieger talk, Beverly, get ready. You're talking next, um, is I want to pitch... This, we have a lot of merchandise out there that we sell, but this is the one that I'm really excited about. This is a magazine that we do. Every year, Kevin Farkas and I, Kevin is with Veteran Voices, as Brian Chimini is, you can see they're recording this, they're taking pictures. Every year, we make a magazine of stories that were told at our breakfast. And uh, last year was the first time we did it. This is our second issue, and we have this for sale out there uh, for 10 bucks. Please consider picking up a copy. If you want to support the Veterans Breakfast Club, that's a great way to do it. Um, and these are all, these happen to be all World War II stories that have been told. Beverly, I won't say how old you are, but you're older than Ed. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and that is you as an Army whack. Right. I got this picture just this morning. I know. You know. Okay, you were told. <laughs> what a wonderful picture that is. When was it taken? It was taken in April of 1943 at Fort Custer, Michigan. Fort Custer, Michigan. So you were a, a WAC, a Women's Army at the time, Auxiliary right. Corps, W-A-A-C. Why did a nice girl like you want to join the Army in 1943? Well, I'll tell you this story. You had to be 21. I wanted to get out on my own and my mother... Dad, no, you can't go. You can't get your own apartment. So I saw that as a way to go in to get away from mommy. <laughs> and I'm, believe me, I'm not the only one that said that. Two years ago, a 14-year-old great-granddaughter told me, said, no, that's not you way you went in. You went in to get out that you could do it on your own. Did you learn a lot in the Army, I imagine, as a young woman? I guess. <laughs> You guess. Did you like the Army? Yes, I never regretted going in. What was your job? Well, um, at uh, Forkester, Michigan, that's where the boys came into the service and their mail had to be redistributed. I was always with the postal unit, regardless of where I was. 
Then they put me into recruiting after a year. And back then, believe it or not, between movies, you had to get up and make speeches. So that's what you did. For three months, then they sent me overseas. That shows you how good I was. So you made little recruiting speeches between the movies and movie theaters. Yes. That is so cool. Yeah. And then I was, went there again. I was with the postal unit. So you went, I'm sorry, you went overseas. Where did you go? To uh, England, Sutton Coldfield, England. And that's where all the mail from the army came into for Europe. And of course, there again, you had to redistribute the mail. Okay. And of course, that's where some of the casualties came back and one of our girls that's how she learned that her brother had been killed and after that our woman wouldn't let us our leader wouldn't let us work on that however i'd been a pbx operator now a lot of people don't know what a pbx telephone operator that's where you just take it and plug it in and plug it in and plug it in and that was my job i mean i've seen that in old movies of uh, these operators kind of plugging plugs into a big wall of Right. And uh, the English did the uh, work in the daytime and our girls did it at night. Why did you guys have to do it at night? Because they used the English to do it during the day. Okay. It's the only reason I can think of. Did you like your work? Well, I was did a PBX operator, which I much preferred to sitting there and and redistributing mail all day long or all night long. Then uh, six months before the end of the war, they sent me to another postal unit right outside of Paris. And, of course, I was there on VE Day. Oh, you got to tell me what VE Day was like in Paris. Oh, a lot went on, parades and all kinds of celebration. Come VJ Day, not one thing was done. No celebration for VJ Day, just VE Day. Just VE Day. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you remember when you were in England, any V-1 rockets or V-2 rockets? Uh, very fortunately, I never, when, when I hear all the stories these men tell, I'm almost ashamed to talk because what I went through was nothing. It was like going to work six days a week. Right. And, uh, but I never was in any danger. And do, do you remember D-Day at all? Yeah, We'd uh, wake up in the morning, and uh, we'd ask the uh, person waking us up, well, did they go in yet? No. Then one morning, uh, we said, did they go in yet? That was their question every morning. She says, yes. Didn't you hear the planes going over? Well, you know, we wouldn't have asked that question if we'd heard the planes going over. What was coming home like? Well, we, we they kept us there for two or three months, and they would have... We're getting ready to send us on to the Pacific, you know, but of course the war was over, so we got out, period. Did you get seasick? No. No? Okay. When was this picture taken? That's at Fort Custer, Michigan. And then this one? Uh, I think it had to be, I, I thought it might be in Paris, but I'm not sure. And you were a sergeant? At one time, yes. Technical sergeant. Thank you very much, Beverly. We have a bunch of people from VVI. Thank you guys for for coming. VVI, Fayette County. Hi, Glenn. How you doing? How are you doing? Good, good. Hey, when did you join the Army? Uh, March of 69. 
And were you drafted? No, I enlisted. Why'd you enlist? Well, it was a sign of the times. I had a brother spend a year in Vietnam prior to that and uh, tried to follow his footsteps. And where did you end up going? I went to Thailand for three months, four months. Then I was transferred to Nam and went back to Thailand with a friend of mine to get his wife and kids packed up to send them back to the States. Okay. Well, we got involved in a motorcycle accident, and that was the end of the war for me. I spent 14 months in Valley Forge Hospital. 14 months in a hospital 14 months. because of the motorcycle yes, accident? Yes, It was a nightmare. Uh, my, my, my buddy was killed. I deal with that every day, every night. It's tough. But uh, Can you tell me what it was like to come home from overseas, and that would have been, I guess, in 1970, 71, maybe? 70. January 70 is when I got hurt. Uh, January 10th, in fact. We flew into Fort Dix, and we spent the night there. They put us on a bus to take us to Valley Forge Hospital, which is in Phoenixville. There was, um, I think, 18 of us on the bus. Everybody was litter patients. I was in a body cast from my breast to my toes. Oh. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, Bus driver, and it was Corman on there. Corman said, you guys better keep your head down. We're coming through the streets of Philadelphia. And people started beating on the bus. They were throwing stuff on the bus. They were calling us names. That was a nightmare. You know, this is my welcome home? Um, I don't think so. I've been bitter about that since, and I'll, I'll take that to my grave. I can imagine. You know, Joe Public and my butt. Did people ever ask you about what it was like? I mean, did they ever say, you know, what, what was Vietnam like? And you want to talk about your service? They never? No, not really. No? Not really. You know, I mean, today they do. But back then they didn't. And as far as I'm concerned, it's too late. Yeah. It's too late. We uh, organized VVI and I got more respect from these guys than I've ever got from anybody. You know, Agent Orange has been killing us. Every day. Uh, I've heard an average of 600 Vietnam vets dying every day. Not off Major Orange. I mean, we're all getting up in age. In December 13, 2013, I lost the best friend I ever had. He was a veteran's veteran. And most of you guys from Fayette County, you know Frank Wojtek. Frank, Frank and myself started this organization and uh, he made me promise him that we wouldn't let it die and I won't. I'll keep, I'll keep on going as long as I can. We got 50 guys from Fayette County that was killed in Vietnam. We got a monument at the bottom of the mountain in Hopwood. Every year we do our vigil, and we'll continue to do that as long as we can. We have some Gold Star families still in the area. They come out every year. That's where I get my respect from gotcha. these people. You know, so I'll just continue to do it. You know, been a long time, and they say time. Heals all wounds, not in my case. And I think these guys will tell you the same thing. Thank you very much, Glenn. Thank you for talking. I just noticed, Bill, you were in the Navy. Yeah. So I thought we'd have a Navy guy speak. This is Bill Pitts. Yes. When did you join the Navy? In 1965. And why did you join the Navy? Uh, well, we uh, needed a career when we got out of the... Uh, got out of high school, and a lot of my 1965 class joined the Navy, and the recruiter said, uh, you guys will never go to Vietnam. 
I was 18 years old unloading bombs in Da Nang Harbor Christmas Eve, or Christmas of 1965. And thank you very much. <laughs> wow. So you went, what was your first impression of arriving in Vietnam? Do you uh, remember? It was a beautiful country. Of course, we always was off course and off uh, the shore, but uh, we got to uh, go into Da Nang, and it was something that I never, never, ever could have imagined in my whole life, nothing but bars. And uh, we were told that we could go on Liberty, but we had to go into a screened bar. You could not go in one that was open because they were lobbing grenades in there. And uh, they told us if we drank anything, that it had to be delivered with the cap on because they were putting uh, human waste in the drinks, the soldiers and sailors and everybody. And so, so uh, I had an experience there. And then I got on a light cruiser, which we went up to Sung River, and we had an admiral aboard our ship. And uh, we run aground on 18 knots. And uh, they started to set up heavy artillery, and we had nuclear warheads aboard. So uh, we had to take every precaution. So we were to abandon ship if, it didn't, uh, if we didn't uh, get off this... Uh, sand barge by uh, nightfall and we had marines uh, circling our ship walking around with uh, automatic weapons and they were firing into the water in case uh, a uh, diver had come over and then the all of course all the ship's functions were shot down we didn't have no guns no nothing the only thing that was working was the admiral's air conditioner <laughs> and I was electrician. They told us, don't you ever shut that thing down. We had an emergency generator uh, from solar, and it was online. It was a gas turbine generator. And we finally got off and went, to, uh, went back out to sea to flush our condensers out. But uh, during that period of time, we had two jets circling our masts, and uh, they were setting up heavy artillery and uh, they waited till they got everything in place, and then they uh, they dropped a whole bunch of bombs on them. And so, and that was the first time, really, that you know sailors are right there up against the war. And a lot of guys took pictures and the old thirty-five millimeter cameras. They confiscated all that. You can't tell grandma that we're having a war. <laughs> so we we they couldn't let grandma know. And uh, being a Seventh Fleet flagship, you would think that we could uh, at least engage in the war. At 8 o'clock one morning, we put two conventional warheads on the launcher, and we were supposed to shoot down a MiG, a Russian MiG, and she was flying out of Hanoi, the airstrip in Hanoi, and we locked on her. We was a sister to the heat detector, the Talus missiles, what it did was put two high-frequency beams of radar on the object. The missile was fired, and it would go, it, that, that radio frequency would uh, pinpoint that missile. Well, like I said, 
we went to general quarters at 8 o'clock in the morning, and at 3 o'clock that afternoon, we still didn't have permission to shoot this plane down. And the spotter plane said that that uh, jet had flew out and did whatever it was supposed to do, which was supposed to be very detrimental to our war efforts in Vietnam. He come back and landed on that airstrip and set 30 minutes before we got permission from the Pentagon. <laughs> now, we had an admiral aboard who knew how many rolls of toilet paper was used over there, and he couldn't okay this... Uh, this strike, so we we didn't do anything, and uh, I I enjoyed the Navy. It was a good experience. Uh, uh, not so much over there, but uh, I've seen a lot of places. And uh, due to the due to Agent Orange, I have uh, nine stints in my heart, and I have uh, everything that you can imagine with uh, diabetes. I got neuropathy, uh, my leg tingles clear up to the knee, and uh, when I went down to get my C&P exam in Pittsburgh, the girl, which was young, interviewed me, and she said, all you guys want is more money. I said, doesn't everybody? But what I told her is, give me my heart back when I was 18 years old, and you can have all your money. And with what Glenn said about coming back, I joined the reserves, I was in the reserves, and one night I came to a meeting and the uh, guy that was in charge of the reserve center said, roll out the fire hoses on, in the hallway. We're supposed to have a demonstration of college kids from the Keithwork coming down and protesting the war in Vietnam and protesting us. So that did not happen, but uh, we were planning to uh, take care of those college kids. We didn't want them to get hurt or, or, or us get hurt, you know. And, and what everything Glenn said about the monument and about these 50 guys, I got to say ditto. All these guys have become my brothers. You know, I was out hunting one time, and I can't stand, so I had a, a chair there, and the, and the grandkids and the kids put me there and said, you stay there, pap. And, and I seen a tree that had fell probably prior to that. And what it did was it only come out of the ground when it fell, and it fell into another tree. And I'm thinking to myself, that tree is holding that other tree up and it's still growing you know and that's the way us veterans are we hold each other up we got each other's back i just told phil here that we are uh glenn's uh hucklebees you know huckleberries huckleberry yeah we're his buddies we got his back and each each and every one of us got our backs and like he said we're the only ones back then that respected each other even though we didn't know each other every time we meet we hug and say i love you and my grandson said what's going on pap you ain't you know you ain't turning are you i said no no i said but this is my brother this is uh uh i lost a brother 
Uh, he was only 55 years old, and I grieved. I also grieved just as hard as when we lost Frank. And I thank you for having us up here. We appreciate it. I had a good breakfast. My wife didn't have to get up and cook for me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much, Bill. You're next, Nick. But first, James. Oh, James Smalley. Yeah. I, I was going to meet you uh, at, a, at a breakfast in uh, Wexford. You guys didn't show up, right? I didn't know nothing Jimmy? about it. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, I got your email. Oh, yeah, but I anyhow. Here. Anyhow. That's why we James, thank you for coming today. You're welcome. And you were in the Army. Yep, in the Army. France when, and Germany. When did you join the Army? Well, in uh, 1943, the story is I was in a coal mine. They said, if you stay in a coal mine, we'll get to deferment. So uh, I didn't like the coal mine. almost got killed in there. And I told my wife, for two cents, I'd quit this job. She gave me two cents, sold my car, and rounded the dashboard and joined the Army. <laughs> so the Army was safer than the coal mine, in your mind? Uh, yeah. Where did the Army send you? Fort Meade, Maryland first, get shots and stuff. Then to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. From there, Camp Gordon, Kentucky, Camp Campbell, Tennessee maneuvers, back to Fort Jackson, sailed for the overseas and... Camp Shanks, they sent you overseas, August 26, 1944. Yeah, I landed out in France. And so you landed in France, and uh, what was your job? Uh, I landed in uh, Omaha Beach. I got to be a Jeep driver. You were a Jeep driver? Yeah. Were you in a division? An infantry division? 328th Infantry, Yankee Division. Oh, the Yankee Division, the yeah. 26th Division. Yeah. I uh, had some close calls. They said they run over 17 landmen. They come in, the, the man uh, takes care of the, the cleaning. And he said, you do, you've been running over 17 landmines. None went off. <laughs> An artillery shell fell right here. It was a dud. Didn't go off. <laughs> Just like Ed Jackson. So Just I, carried that, by I carried that Bible right here all through the war. The Bible right here. Carried your, that Bible throughout the war? Yeah, throughout the war. And the 26th Division, I know, was in the Battle of the Bulge. Do you remember the Bulge? Yeah, I was there. <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> it was. It was cold, I know that. Yeah. Uncle got killed, and uh, he was a tank commander, and he got killed there. And that was when I got wounded, and uh, I left there, and I, they tried to sail me back home or fly me on a ship. Ship got fogged in, so they sent me across the English Channel to England, to Tavistock, England, for about a month. Then I came back home. They came out and said the uh, ship was in trouble. There's these, they put in these water, these uh, things of water, and the ship was heading to seam was spreading. So they made it to Virginia. <laughs> so can you tell me how you were wounded? Shrapnel. Went through, through my leg, but uh, I had trouble with my back. I don't know why... I, it was two or three weeks I came pick up a pen, a pen to write home. Uh, must have been a jar or something. That, just, that noise and stuff, I didn't uh, pitch dark. And uh, I don't know why I'd uh, hit in the leg and bothered my back. Still got back trouble. <laughs> James, I'm doing a poll of who's the oldest veteran here. How old are you? 93. 93. You're tied for second. <laughs> <laughs> what did they train you to do in the Army? I was... Uh, Studied for uh, aerial photographs, sent to all kinds of schools, and in foreign country, I could go any place, France, without getting lost. 
because I could find a landmark and go with that. And uh, and I was I led the army to the front. Uh, all these companies in the dark, I put them on the front line. I was leader then, a leader <laughs> to bring the whole troops to the front. Then then the the ones would get a break. They was coming out and and mine was going in. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for coming today, James. And please don't leave without me uh, making copies of those pictures. I do ask that veterans come, and you can email these pictures to me if you do email. Um, I ask that veterans bring pictures of themselves in the service, and I never, I never keep the pictures, but I make copies of them with my little camera. So if you'd want to, uh, that's what I did with Beverly's pictures today. If you just bring your pictures here, I'll make copies, and I'll put them on the screen at a future breakfast. Or here's a piece of mail to Mrs. Beatrice Smalley. Was my mother. That was your mother, huh? He was wounded. I said that possibly could have passed through her hands. Beverly, maybe you handled this mail. <laughs> you might have. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Was that, was that Ed Jackson he was talking to? That was his school buddy. Oh, you know Ed Jackson. James. Ed Jackson's right there. Hey, Ed, could you raise your hand? They were school buddies. You'll say hi to him afterwards. This picture, this man, Bob Savage, was from Mark Leesburg. This is my dad and him at Fort Jackson, South Carolina in 1943. Stanley Yaver of Nanny Glow, Pennsylvania, Bob Savage of Mark Leesburg, and my dad, James Smalley of Dunbar. Please don't leave without me get making a copy of that. All right, Jimmy? Thank you. Nick. Can we go off script? We can go off script, but I just want to say, I think you might be the youngest vet here. How old are you? 31. You're 31. All right. I think you're the youngest vet. Usually works out that way. Yeah. Uh, so I just came on board with VBC a couple months ago to run the post 9-11 um, project. It's very similar to what we do here, but we do it in the evenings at bars. Uh, it's much easier to get younger guys to turn out to that. But I don't really want to talk about that this morning so much. I want to talk about the Vietnam guys, if I may. Okay, please do. Yeah. Uh, so I, I hear you guys' stories about, you know, how difficult it was for you to come home. You know, I, I have a, the utmost respect for war to Korea guys. When I came back from Afghanistan, you know, everyone's got the yellow ribbon on their car. Everyone's got the support our troops uh, sign in their yard. And that's great. And I'm appreciative of that. It's nice. The gesture is nice, but the only people that really had um, meaningfully uh, supported us when we came back was the Vietnam veterans. Uh, when I came back on a leave from my first tour in Afghanistan, you come back, come back for two weeks, and you either go to Atlanta if you're going to the East Coast, or you go to Dallas if you're going anywhere um, west of the Mississippi. And when we came off that plane in Atlanta, there were a thousand Vietnam vets there to welcome us back, uh, you know, offering us to use their cell phone. Did we need a ride anywhere? Uh, ask, giving us money for drinks or sodas, a handshake, anything. And I asked them, I was like, what? I asked one of the guys, I was like, why, why do you guys do this? Because they do it every single day, because every day flights come in. They do it every day. And he said, uh, you know, once upon a time, I was your age, I was 19 years old, and uh, we were fighting in a quagmire then too. Uh, he was like, we understand what you guys are going through, and we're here to support you. Uh, for that reason, I mean, Vietnam vets have a very special place, and not just my heart, but all the post-911 guys' hearts. And, uh, it means a lot to us, everything you guys have done for us. And um, yeah, we love you guys. We support you. Just like, and you mentioned the roots of a tree holding each other. You guys haven't just held each other up. You've held us up too. You didn't have to do that. So we're grateful, very much so. 
Nick, when you got home from Afghanistan, or maybe when you were there, did you get a sense that people back home didn't understand the war? They didn't understand what you're... Yeah, no, no one knows. Uh, you go to a college classroom. Uh, you know, I'll take that a step further. You go into a, a college classroom full of people getting their master's degrees. I uh, say, find Afghanistan on a map. Can't find it. Don't know anything about it. Uh, find Iraq on a map. Don't know. Uh, they can give you a general area. They're usually wrong about that general area. Uh, but they can give you that much. I was really pissed off when I got to the airport in Atlanta, or when I was leaving the airport in Atlanta. I had, I had this great experience. All these Vietnam guys welcoming us back. Felt really good. I get on the plane. I'm in uniform still. Uh, the flight attendant says, are you coming back from Iraq? And I was like, no, I'm coming back from Afghanistan. This was in 2006. Uh, Afghanistan wasn't really a big deal back then. So she's like, come back from Iraq? I was like, no, Afghanistan. And not three minutes later when I sit down, she gets on the PA. She's like, uh, hey, we have a serviceman returning from Iraq on the plane. I'm just like, well, so once again, I appreciate the effort, but... Iraq was getting all the publicity. Afghanistan, people had kind of forgotten about. Yeah, because we had about 100,000 troops in Iraq at the time. In Afghanistan, uh, my brigade, 3rd Brigade Combat Team at 10th Mountain Division, we were it. We were it for the entire country. A company of men, uh, you know, was basically responsible for about a 200-square-mile area of responsibility. Uh, no one knew about it. No one cared. And I mean, that's, that's why it was so meaningful to have it. Because the guys from Vietnam, they could find Afghanistan on a map. Uh, you know, they could tell you about the Soviet invasion there. They, they knew everything about it. And it was just so nice to have people that cared, cared enough to read about it. I'll put it that way. Do you think your mission in the infantry in Afghanistan was, were you doing the kind of same thing that the infantry in Vietnam was doing, kind of going out on patrols? Yeah, counterinsurgency stuff for no reason. So it was, yeah, it was basically... Uh, there, there's lots of correlations there. I mean, we never should have been either of those places. Can I ask you another question, Nick? Um, and I know this is an unfair question. Can you describe kind of what the average day in Afghanistan was like? I mean, a, a, a typical day, or was there never a typical day? Never a typical day. Never a typical um, day. I mean, it's hot pretty much every day. The food sucks every day. <laughs> uh, after about, and these guys will tell you, everyone that's ever served will tell you, you know, after 11 months, your best friends, your brothers, they're with you. You want to punch every single one of them in their freaking noses because uh, you haven't been able to get more than two inches away from them for the last year. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, there's... It's kind of like two brothers stuck in the back seat on a long car ride. For, you start for a fighting 12 after a month while. car ride, okay. yeah. Okay. But then the weird thing is you get home and you, you, you go about your things and you kind of miss it, right? You don't miss it. I'll never have friends like that. Uh, I'll never have men that I trust like that. I'll never have guys that I love like that. I mean, that's the worst part of coming home, right? Like, uh, I have civilian friends. You know, I have a wife. I have a kid. I, I can't talk to them. What am I going to tell them? It's not her burden. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, my civilian friends still can't find Afghanistan on a map. What's the point in talking to them about it? I mean, all we have is each other, really, when it comes down to brass tacks. So, yeah. How big was the community of soldiers that you were with? I mean, were you working in a, I know you were a member of a squad, but were you? Was yeah, it so a, we had a battalion area of responsibility in Kunar province. Uh, Kunar and Nuristan in northeastern Afghanistan. It's right on the Paki border near, uh, right on the other side of Pakistan is northern and southern Waziristan. That's those, as they refer to as the lawless tribal regions of Pakistan where there's no like police or anything. And uh, you can see right there, like, so at the top of that ridge line, that picture on the left, like, the top of that and everything to the right of it is Pakistan. Okay. So, I mean, they'd come up, they'd shoot, they'd go back. Uh, we couldn't chase them because that's Pakistan, so they're a sovereign nation, and we don't do It's like Cambodia into Vietnam. You couldn't chase them in right. 
Cambodia. Yeah, a lot of correlations. But so this, the only like redeeming part of it, uh, like the kids over there were great. This was at, I love this too. This is like the only thing I look back fondly on. So this is at a girl's school in Kunar province. And we get there, uh, we had some guys from our Alpha Company attachments up there because the Taliban weren't huge fans of the little girls going to school. Uh, so they would do foolishness up there. So we had like a couple squads of guys up there. And we were going up there to resupply them one day. And these kids were out there. And I'm like, what are these kids doing? What are these little boys doing at this girls' school? Well, it turns out like little Afghan boys are just like little American boys. And they'll just loiter around wherever the girls are and wait for them to get out of class. Uh, but just like the coolest little kids. And they were like, they love Gatorade. Uh, if their father's Taliban, they will sell him out for a case of Gatorade. <laughs> so he just rolled around with a trunk full of those all the time. So yeah, like that was the, that was the one sunny part of the tours. Like those kids were awesome. Uh, and, and actually the school teachers there were pretty great. They were all really, um, so they looked like they were 100 because that, that weather over there is rough on people, but they're probably like 60, 50 maybe. Uh, and all the teachers there were... Uh, like Mujahideen in the 70s fighting the Soviets uh, and they were like trained by the CIA stuff like that and so like they're real pro-American so a lot of the young people there are real firmly on our side so that was nice to see Uh, they knew that you know all the BS involved all the I mean there's there are casualties I mean there's civilian casualties but like they knew that it wasn't us as individuals that like wished anything bad on them like they they were students of history enough to know that like the common GI is just there because he got swindled into it somehow. You said it was hot, and I've kind of always been curious about this. Um, you can go. It's like 1000 bucks for a plane ticket. Excuse me? You can, you can I take can a flight. I go and check yeah. it out, see how hot it is myself. You'll love it. If I went, I probably wouldn't be ducked out like you guys are. I mean, in hot, how, did you, how do you get by wearing that much equipment and clothing in 100-plus degree weather? Yeah, you just hate life. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's just awful. It sucks. Every day is awful. You're just way, way overheated all the time. So bad. It's so hot. The worst, so like Afghanistan was hot. Like it would be like 105, 106 in summertime average. Uh, yeah. The wintertime, get down to like the, the upper 80s and in the evenings it would cool off. But wow. in Kuwait, when I got off the plane in Kuwait, it was like at 2 in the morning in June, and it felt like a blow dryer on high heat was just blowing on. It was like 118 degrees there. Oh. It was the most miserable, god-awful place you could imagine. So I was just So you're just drinking constantly, drinking water constantly or Gatorade or whatever? Gatorade, a lot of like Red Bulls. Red Bulls. Yeah, which is probably not the best thing to hydrate, but... yeah. When you need sleep. And probably not the best thing for your personality either. Sure, sure. I'd talk these kids' ears off and had some Red Bulls in me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so you just drink nonstop. And you wear this uniform. Like, so we'd be out for like six or seven days at a time and you'd come back uh, and you wouldn't need like a hanger. Your uniform was so stiff from the salt and sweat that it would just stand up on its own. Were you ever tempted, again, another stupid question, I'm not a vet. Were you ever tempted to kind of take the helmet off or take the flak jacket off or uh when i got to afghanistan i was a private uh by the time i left i was an e5 i was a sergeant and there's like you can see in the the pictures the progression like there you know i'm a private a specialist i've got all this like i've even got the groin protector on there but then later in the tour like when i'm an e5 at that point i don't have my helmet on i don't have my gun with me you guys know how it is you make e5 and you just don't care anymore you don't you've got enough rank that you don't have to do the stupid stuff but you don't have enough rank where you're like really responsible for anything okay so yeah so a private couldn't get away with taking off equipment, but a sergeant could? Yeah, because like if a private took it off, I'd be the sergeant also not wearing the stuff that would yell at him to put it on. Okay. 
Thank you, Nick. Yeah, thanks Thank for you very me. much. Thanks for talking. I, I can't stop the breakfast without introducing our military couple here. We have uh, Bruce and Lois Bankert. Robin, Robin Ro Bankert. Why did I say Lois? I don't know. You look like a Lois. Robin. And you are a mixed marriage. Yeah. You're Army and you're Marines. Correct. When, would you mind standing up, Robin? When did you join the Army? 1974. Why did you join the Army? I had a fight with my boyfriend. I wanted to go see Europe. How's that? Sound better? You what? You were going to go see Europe? Yes. I joined the Army to go see Europe. And did you see Europe? Yes, I went to Germany. I was stationed in Germany for two years. It was join the army for two years and we'll pick your MOS. Okay. And I became the second female trained in heavy equipment operation. I was assigned to the 94th Engineer Combat Battalion in Germany. Uh, did you like the work? I loved it. Mm-hmm. You did two years there? I did two years there, yes. And you like Germany? I love Germany. I love the army. And um, you're a very active veteran. I know you're in a women's army. I belong to the Women's Army Corps Veterans Association. I am the second vice president of the National Association, and I'm the second vice president and treasurer of our local one here in Pittsburgh. Any women veterans? Todd has some pamphlets for you to see and join our organization. So you did two years in the army, that's it? Yes. A, a small fraction of your life. I mean, I know you're young. But still, two years is a small fraction of your life. Yes, it was. Why mm -hmm. is it so important to you? Why is that two years in the service? I was in during Vietnam, even though I did not go to Vietnam. So I support all the Vietnam veterans. I was also married to military, so I've been involved with the military. I'm a retired federal employee with military medicine for 27 years. Oh, wow. So I've been involved with the military. I still am. I'm doing ASVAB testing in high schools. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Robin. Thank you. Bruce. So, Bruce, you're a career Marine. I, I was, Todd. When did you join? Uh, 1986. And why? Uh, something I always wanted to do. My father was a World War II veteran. Um, all my uncles were World War II veterans. Most of my older cousins were Vietnam veterans. And just, I, I felt it was my duty to serve. It was your turn. It was. Why the Marines? The few, the proud. <laughs> I was, most Marines, when you ask them that, why Marines? I wanted to join the best. That's what they usually say. That, that, that's one of the reasons. When you were in boot camp, did you ever think, boy, did I make a mistake? Uh, sometimes, at times. Yeah. But, but um, like he had said earlier, you know, you just, just suck it up and get through it. You know, it, it, it only lasts for a little while. And you became a gunnery sergeant. Right. I retired a gunnery sergeant in 2006. Can you describe what a gunnery sergeant is for those who don't know? that? Um, a gunnery sergeant is an E7, be comparable to a, uh, in the Army, to a sergeant first class, correct? Um, in, a, in an infantry unit, your gunnery sergeant is in charge of your beans, band-aids, and uh, bullets, your logistics. And he is generally the senior enlisted with an infantry MOS, where a first sergeant may have been um, admin or air wing or what have you and be with an infantry unit. Usually you're... Company gunnery sergeant is that expert in that MOS. So your Marine career spanned some pretty 20, active 20 time. years, yes. Yeah, I mean, so you were there for Desert uh, Storm. Desert Storm, correct. And you did go overseas right. for that? Uh, we were actually slated to do uh, a workup called Northern Wedding, which is a cold weather package up in Norway. So we were geared up, ready to go on that in August, and Desert Storm broke out. So we actually left 
the end of August for Desert Storm on by ship. And we were over there for nine months till April when we came back. Okay. And how did life change for you after September 11th, 2001? Uh, actually, again, we were getting ready to go again on a Mediterranean float. We had just came back from Fort Bragg doing a large exercise, and we were the first ones back. I was with the mechanized infantry unit, so we drove ourselves back with the LAVs back to Camp Lejeune, and we were in late putting gear away and, and getting ready, and so we had a, a late day the next day. We didn't have to be in until noon, and I can remember getting up that morning and watching it on the TV on Good Morning American, that first plane hitting the towers, and then when that second plane hit, I was like, oh, that's no accident. This is it. We're going. So, and then we were, we're the next ones out of the chute. Where? Where did you go? Uh, we actually did uh, Mediterranean. We went down through the Suez Canal into uh, the Persian Gulf, into that region. Um, they were looking in more going into Afghanistan at that time because they, at that time, they knew that's where the threat level was coming from. Right. So, we never actually went ashore. My unit didn't go ashore in Afghanistan. We had uh, people from the ship that did go in because they had the bombing in Karachi at that time. And I imagine the Marines grew after 9-11 with uh, right. recruits. Right. How do I put this? Did they view you as kind of an old man? The old man? And I mean, somebody with almost 20 years? <laughs> that was my call sign, Todd. <laughs> my call sign was old man from the time I was in. Actually, I turned 26 in boot camp. Uh, that oh, day wow. We, that day we did a four-mile run. I'll, I'll remember that probably for the rest of my life. It was the, the longest I'd ever ran in my life at that time. Wow. So you were 26 in boot camp. Right. How oh, great. Thank you so much, yeah. Bruce, for Thank coming you. today. Glad to be here. Sir. Thank you. Mark O'Connell, why don't you stand up? You're a veteran? Well, no, no I'm not. Okay. But, um, my, my father, a World War II veteran, served in... There, he's, he and my mom are actually uh, buried in uh, Arlington Cemetery. So a lot of my background is military, Navy. I live here in Spring Valley, and we just want to really thank all of you for coming. And for every one of you who stood and told your story, it means a lot to us. We're really a, a community that want to love each other, love Jesus first of all, and live in peace together. And actually, we have to thank you for the freedoms we have in this country. And we know it's all under attack, and we, we need to work together so that what's trying to destroy this nation doesn't destroy it. And I know each one of you have actually laid down your life for that, and we actually want to do the same in love and service to each other. So it's just tremendous you're here, and um, look forward to more. And we really thank you for being here. And um, we have uh, Saturday night suppers here. Neighbors are always welcome. 6.30 in the evening, home-cooked meals, lots of fellowship. We sing, we enjoy one another. And you're all very, very welcome. Or if you want to come another time, you can get a hold of me or one of the other brothers here and we gladly show you around. So thanks very, very much. It means a lot just to be here. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wonderful sentiments to end on. Thank you, Mark. And I, I, I want to bring this session to a close. Uh, we like to keep these to about 90 minutes. We always leave more stories at the tables than we could tell. 
and that's why we want to come back. So I, I hope we come back either, either later this year or maybe next year. And, um, and, and please do let me know your contact information so we could uh, keep in contact with you in case we do have a breakfast near here. We'd love you to come. You're welcome to come to any location. And uh, thank you all very much. I want to thank uh, Brian Cimini for taking the pictures today. Kevin Farkas. A Navy veteran for recording, Ben Wright, Colonel Ben Wright, and Marshall Gordon here for keeping track of the name tags, and of course, Nick Grimes, and everybody here at Spring Valley. You've been listening to another live storytelling event by the Veterans Breakfast Club. For more information about the Veterans Breakfast Club, including a schedule of our events throughout Western Pennsylvania, visit us at veteransbreakfastclub.com. 